0: hello and welcome to the rabbit hole the definitive developers podcast in fantabulous chelsea manhattan i'm your host dave anderson uh today with us we have william jeffries as well as vic eng (laughs) and our
1: esteemed guests jonathan wexler how you doing jonathan why don't you tell us a little about yourself i'm pretty good grew up in philadelphia and uh, worked a few years there initially as a an instructor at a coding boot camp and then I was a lead instructor there and also worked on a few curriculums. And I went on um, just the past two years and worked, I'm currently working at Bloomberg. And I, I see that there's a very beautiful book over here as well. <laughs> it's it's a lot larger than maybe you thought it was going to be when you started out. Yeah, it took some time get programming with Node.js. It's through many publications and um, yeah, it definitely is bigger than I thought it was going to be. What was an interesting topic that
0: you like sunk your teeth into when you're writing the book? Like something that was like really meaty and core to JavaScript that people don't think about.
1: When I was thinking about writing the book, I was trying to come from a perspective of some beginners, but also some intermediate developers and some questions they might have getting into JavaScript and into Node.js. And um, obviously, one of the bigger topics is the event loop and how that works. What exactly is asynchronous event-driven non-blocking IO as Node's website will describe oh, yeah.
0: it. Yeah, that's so many buzzwords. Right? Like, what it- <laughs> It's not English, right? Like That'll be like Swedish so, translation yeah, on it's Google. German. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I tried my best in the first you know, 50, 60 pages to address what that is, what it means, try to break it down through a few analogies, a few examples so that the reader can really understand what they're getting into, what's going on behind the scenes.
2: I'm yeah. into it. I'm into it. What is going on behind the scenes with the event loop? Well,
1: I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so yeah, I think that for me, when I was trying to find the best way to explain what the event loop was, I saw lots of diagrams online, even more buzzwords. Um, it was just didn't seem like there was a clear explanation. And so for me, I think the best way to explain it is an analogy. I think one of the best analogies I've seen online is a server at a restaurant and mm-hmm. lots of customers in the restaurant looking to place their order. So the analogy would be with most other frameworks and platforms, you have customers in the restaurant, each wanting to place their order, And in order to really fulfill the requests, you need an additional server for each customer placing a request.
0: That's kind of how it works in Python, because they have the global interpreter lock, so you can only have one thread active at a time.
1: And that's a problem with really any system that creates a new process or new thread for every new task that comes in. And especially in web development, when we're dealing with tons of requests coming in, you need to know how to manage those requests um, and especially not block new request from coming in you yeah that's, able- always,
0: that's always like one of the cl- claims of fame for like javascript frameworks too it's like
1: oh my gosh i can
0: do so many requests at once but like it's Correct. easy to gloss over that <laughs> if you're old enough
3: to remember when node was first introduced it was billed as non blocking io non blocking io and for the first year that was really popular and there was a little backlash about that phrase but now of course we see that actually that's that's pretty useful and it's a nice thing to have
0: what, what was the controversy about non-blocking IO? People were like up in arms about it? It seemed uh, crazy. Well, it wasn't so much that people
3: were up in arms about it, but they it ended up being just another way to handle multi-threading. And maybe some people are uh, too young to remember. I'm not. I'm very old. <laughs> they, back in you know the early 2000s, there were a bunch of, of people who kind of cut their teeth on dealing with multi-threading. Right and like <laughs> Java and exactly all that good stuff exactly and even C plus or even C sharp before the uh, TPL library, and so it was kind of a, a badge of honor to be able to say, hey, I can manage uh, my resources in a multi threaded environment and not overwrite my stuff. And Node came around and said, yeah, okay, that seems really impressive, but why don't do that? Just use this, use the event loop and. People flocked to Node.js and said, Hey, this is a really nice way to do asynchronous programming. But I think some feelings were hurt. <laughs> 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 I spent years dealing with some.
0: Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, was it wasn't so, so much a controversy yeah, like, as it was a, a backlash. Yeah, it's like a I guess a people problem with any new technology. It's like, mm-hmm. what do you mean everything I know is garbage? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you maybe you yeah. found a better way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like is it, even now like in in uh Python, they're like importing these ideas in like the latest versions of Python, they're they're building up event loops and a sync await. Right, and yeah, and other- now there's a whole new population of people who are like, what does it mean? What does it mean to be an mm-hmm. event loop? So I feel like this is a very broadly applicable topic. Yeah, actually. there's
1: pros and cons for sure that you know, Node by default is asynchronous. Other languages and platforms are trying to incorporate that because they see the benefits of having asynchronous capabilities. But I guess to set the record straight about multi-threading and how Node, you know, can expand into other worlds and and integrate and communicate with other services that have multiple threads, you know, the event loop specifically is designed to handle kind of first level of communication, especially in web servers, you want that first request coming in to be handled very quickly. If you're just going to render a new view or respond with something, some data, you want that to happen fairly quickly. If there, if a request comes in and we're trying to handle it with some IO that will require more computationally intensive processing power, then we'll use this thread pool, be able to communicate with the file system and use those threads to handle that process. Just like we would if we were communicating with another External service. So the really expensive operations kind of get
3: offloaded into background work, and you can continue listening for new work to start.
1: At the restaurant, you place an order, the waiter is able to take that request, pass it off to the chef, and then maybe, you know, if you're if you requested a full day buffet, then that's going to take some time for the chef to prepare. But at least your order has been placed, the next person can then continue to place their order.
2: Yeah. It seems like that there are some drawbacks, though, right? Like, particularly when asynchrony is the default. Like I'm just thinking there are a lot of applications where that could be a hindrance more than it is a help. Like humans don't think asynchronously, right? Like we are pretty synchronous and there's a lot of research that shows that we're really bad at multitasking, even though a lot of us try and think that we're good at it. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine like in this
0: analogy, like, you know, we have some perfect vision of like where the waiter is, but like maybe for the program, like I'm just at a table and the waiter just comes in and does some stuff. And then nothing happens while they're not in the room or, or something. I, I don't know. How how does that analogy extend, extend to that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Um, we don't think asynchronously, which is why we kind of put together these tricks to pretend that we're writing JavaScript synchronously. And that's where we have callbacks and then promises and async await. That allows us to write code that kind of reads synchronously. It gives us this feeling that... Things are happening in the order that we expect them to happen in. But really, in JavaScript, there's no guarantee that um, some asynchronous code is going to run at any given moment before or after some other piece of asynchronous code. so that there is some danger there. yeah, nothing that's you know too heavy to think about. But ultimately, I think you're right that conceptually, it's a little bit more difficult to get started thinking about purely asynchronous programming.
3: Well yeah. I think that I'm going to say something really controversial which is that I think this <laughs> is why buckle up already yeah <laughs> let's let's get this started which is why I kind of don't like the async await syntax because it does try to kind of present the control flow as is, as if it were synchronous but you No, it's not. And if you think about it as if it were synchronous, you'll fall into a lot of traps. And one of the really nice things about promises is that it's explicit about where the code that's running now stops and where the code that's going to run later ends. And so it makes it very easy, at least for me, to think about promises as if I'm launching off a request to some computer completely somewhere else and I have no idea what's going to happen, but I don't care. And then when that other program or that other computer finishes and it wants to resolve the promise, it's going to call me back at some point as a totally separate uh, invocation in the program. And then I don't confuse my control flows at all. And promises are structured very, very well that way because that then block is so separate and it's indented, right? It doesn't at all look like the code that's about to run. And you can just think of it as a process that was launched off and you don't care what's going to happen next. And sometime later, someone's going to call the then block and launch a whole other process. And for me, it doesn't feel like asynchronous. It feels like five or six or 10 separate synchronous programs.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good point too. I think what people need to consider when they're getting into Node.js is how JavaScript is developing pretty rapidly. And so with every new iteration, there's going to be some new syntax, something to make it a little easier for people to conceptually program, to actually write the code. And then a few changes to maintain really the purity of JavaScript and what you're describing, being able to know exactly what that callback is or what's being returned in the promise. The nice thing about async await is that you should expect a promise to come back. So you kind of preserve a lot of that functionality, but you're right that it's changing so quickly that it's kind of hard to stick with one you know, method, one uh, syntax and structure in, within an application.
0: Coming back to like the event loop itself, like the, the pure event loop and, and our metaphors, is there, it there a way to know looking at my code when the event loop is going to change tasks? Like when my server is going to go away and, and do the next thing?
1: The most part, it's abstracted away, and you can make a lot of assumptions about what's going on and when the event loop is invoked. But you do have kind of this like process next tick that you can look at within Node.js, and everything runs on this one process. You could, if you want to, stop at every phase within the event loop. Some phases deal with timeouts, deal with looking at the callback queue, and a few other spots around the event loop that. Kind of deal with, more with how we handle responses from IO. If you wanted to, there's core library um, support for stopping the event loop, printing out, logging some information at certain points within the event loop. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I think it's just there to let you know that there's something running continuously just to read from a queue, just to feed off this information to other systems, other services, and then put whatever callbacks into a queue and handle them as they come in.
3: So you should never do this, I think, but have you ever come across a use case for manipulating the event queue that wasn't debugging?
1: I haven't personally, but I see (laughs) that there's a reason if you need to. (laughs) (laughs) Just to really like
0: channel some dark magic.
1: Yeah, should you ever like do
0: that? I don't know. I think the debugging um,
3: functionality is really nice, but Mm -hmm. I can't I want to think of a reason for actually just cutting off the event queue and manipulating that, meta-manipulating that um, in an actual business use case. (laughs)
0: Seems a little (laughs) dicey. Like, it's interesting, reading about, like, uh, framework development Mm -hmm. and, like, how they handle semi-synchronous processing. Mm -hmm. You know, looking at Dan Abranov's tweets and how he's explaining that there's no guarantees about how anything is processed or even if it's going to be processed more than once. And I'm like, what does this mean? Like, Mm -hmm. this is a computer. I thought you'd understand what's going to happen, but like, I don't know, like there's, there's some kind of trade-offs that they've, they've made for performance and, and whatnot that cause black magic to be done.
1: And sometimes you see these same issues on the browser. If you're trying to render some UI component and maybe that depends on some other asynchronous request or another component being rendered, sometimes you, there's, they're just not in sync. Sometimes you just get one component rendered without the actual content and you actually need to invoke a new new phase of the event loop to run in order to get that new component to to render there are node packages that are designed really well to handle these issues but there's always going to be an issue there's always going to be some new use case that hasn't been thought of some edge case and and then there's going to be um it's someone out there writing a tutorial on how to dig deeper and mess <laughs> with the event loop. Do the things you shouldn't do. <laughs> Stay away from the event loop, Vic.
0: Back I off. know what I'm doing tonight. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> are, are there any like differences that you should consider or keep in mind between the event loop in, in your browser versus in Node itself in the runtime?
1: For the most part, because it's still using the V8 engine from Google Chrome's browser, there are a lot of similarities. For the most part, you expect it to run pretty much the same. But what's nice about Node is that you have some connection with your file system. And the IO with Node could be another API, could be just directly communicating with a database on your computer. Um, That's something that you may not be dealing with in your browser. And so there are going to be new issues, new types of callbacks you're going to receive that you don't normally get on just a normal web page. That's true, yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking about some of the other differences between JavaScript and Node, and it seems like a lot of it has to do with the file system and the fact that you have access to it in Mm -hmm. Node and you don't in the browser for security reasons. And then also that in the browser, there's this assumption that you're going to be working with the DOM, and there's going to be a global window, and some of your global management is going to come from that world, whereas in Node, none of that's really relevant.
1: Yep, that's all very true. You still have some global variables to deal with in Node. When you're importing modules, when you're sharing modules across um, different elements of your application, they'll still be global to some extent. But, yeah, you don't have to depend on this idea of a DOM or your browser preserving the context of your application and data, um, which is a great relief, but it also means that node is great for working with like for building an API and basically handling data coming in and then sending out whatever results you want to send back, um, building your own like lambda functions and and just kind of like communicate really quickly between servers and and get that one specific task complete as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. And I guess like if you're taking a app that runs in the browser, one easy way to shoot yourself in the foot is by having window references all over the place. Or <laughs> right. if you want to like start to server render that at some point. Yeah, it's it's kind of interestingly like, thinking about those two worlds mm-hmm. colliding. So if you talk about Node being um a good system to write
3: an API or an API handler in, uh what's a use case that you think Node is kind of
1: weak at? I guess the biggest thing you'll find um, one of the cons for node is anything that's computationally intensive, so really these are the things that Python and Java and just any of your like older, more reliable, stable languages will be better at is image manipulation, working with large files and just really manipulating data If you're manipulating data, then it's gonna put a strain on the CPU and it's just not something that node is primed for
0: right and I guess um the advantage. The language like python or ruby is that it can defer to c and other low lo- level libraries like there's even like hooks for you know fortran i think in some of the numerically intense python libraries which is kind of crazy like i'm trying to <laughs> compile fortran on my computer on my <laughs> windows <laughs> computer I'm Like why why do I need to compile Fortran? <laughs> Why am I doing it for Ruby? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. What's going on? But I guess, like, yeah, there, there isn't that kind of a hook in, in Node as much, like, for shelling out to...
1: At this point in time, the best option is to, yeah, pass it along to a service that can handle it a little bit better.
2: Okay. Cool. That seems like a pretty good answer, though, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, using microservices, which seems like a pretty native concept in in the JavaScript mm-hmm. ecosystem yeah. anymore to handle shelling out. It also takes advantage of the asynchrony that the event loop provides. Right, exactly.
0: Right, yeah. And like I, I've I worked a bunch with GraphQL over the past year and like one of the things that is painful in other implementations of GraphQL that is not painful in the JavaScript one is that it's natively asynchronous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the whole concept of it is asynchronous, and so you're just banging your head on a table sometimes with mm-hmm. like a uh, you know resolving those kind of things, and you know it, like it lends itself to an API gateway, like, mm-hmm. like you're you're saying That's a right. microservice to defer to someone who's more talented
2: at doing the number crunching. So this is kind of a lot to take in. We've talked about a lot of stuff here. It's a little overwhelming. I wonder if there is a good way to go about learning more, like. Do you have a framework or a philosophy or some kind of a methodology? I mean, you must have had to do a lot of learning in order to write this book. Yeah. A big part
1: of the reason that this book kind of came about was because of my experience at the coding bootcamp. And part of the idea- You were were teaching there, right? Right. So I was originally teaching and then I moved into a few different roles, but um, ultimately I wrote a curriculum for the Node.js. Ultimately, I wrote a Node.js curriculum that was used by the school.
2: Oh, okay. So that's how the idea for the book came about.
1: Right. That's where the kind of the general structure came about. And then uh, Manning reached out to me because they were looking for a book that basically followed a similar structure kind of from A to Z of how you use Node.js.
2: Was that one of the original working titles? No. (laughs)
1: We did go through a few different titles, um, but Mm. uh, no. It's actually what's interesting is that this is part of a series of get programming books. So there are a few other books um, within the series. And I think they were trying to fit within the same general structure that these other books were written in. And so it was a little bit of um, like managing the, the strategies I had in mind with the structure they were looking for.
3: What is one of the most common questions that you get while you were teaching bootcamp classes?
1: I'd say the common questions have to do with sometimes the foundations of how a language is written and how it operates. A lot of people get into this. Imagine you're learning on your own and your goal is like, I want to build an app as soon as possible. You're not going to really think too deeply necessarily about the bytes you're using up, the memory usage, what libraries you're working with under the hood, right? Right. You I still don't this. think about that.
0: You accept yeah. it, right? <laughs> You've <laughs> accept a certain level of magic. Right. right. So maybe you're still superstitious in yeah. some ways. <laughs> I kind of pushed back on learning metaprogramming for a long time with... With Python and also with Ruby. Like I literally, like when I would read the books on them, I would just skip those chapters. I was like, God <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Although like I still haven't had a very good reason to do it. Like I I I had some like bare excuses to do it. And I, I just went through the exercise and I thought it was like really uh interesting. And it helped me understand like frameworks a little bit better. Because there's there's a lot of that happening out there in the wild, like Django and Uh, Graphene and whatnot. I actually think one of the most
3: illuminating experiences for me was thinking about implementations on databases, because when Mm -hmm. I was starting out, I spent years and years just on relational databases, and in my mind, that was what a database was. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I don't remember four or five years ago that I started really looking into NoSQL databases and understanding database does what a key value store database does, what a column database does, and starting to think through. Okay, well if even in a classic relational database, if you store them in rows, like a relational database, that gives you a certain kind of efficient access for an individual object. But if you store it columnar, columnar. That's a hard word to say. If you <laughs> store it by column, that makes it difficult to get a single row or a single entity out, but it makes it very easy to do aggregate statistics. And that's what data warehouses are built on. Mm-hmm. And really thinking about the mechanics of that implementation kind of show you why a kind of database is good for a certain use case.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a really good book, Building Data Intensive Applications, that goes through this concept. And it's was like, wow. It, it makes sense like and they go through like real examples of like how twitter shot themselves in the foot <laughs> right and then they like on shot themselves in the foot <laughs> and then reshot themselves in the foot <laughs> some may say
1: <laughs> yeah I, mean, I think ultimately it's about exploration i mean it depends what level you are in the industry but if you're new you know feed that curiosity and that enthusiasm don't let it die down and just you know stay up till two in the morning just exploring as much as you can but if you're hopefully if you're working in an environment that's pretty comfortable where no one's really judging you on the details, Um, you know, just learn it as you need to learn it. That's what I think.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What about you, William? Well, I think that learning about some of these topics can have a sort of a brain stretching effect. Mm -hmm. You know, when you come to learn a new concept, it's like your mind temporarily has to take on another shape and it sort of stretches the walls a little bit. And then the next time that you, you need to wrap your mind around a similarly shaped concept, it's a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. So I think that there's something nice about learning these underlying low-level concepts because it stretches your mind out. And then sometimes that makes it easier to think about some of the higher-level problems as well. Yeah. It's like leg day for your mind.
3: It's funny, but it's true because if you get in the habit of looking at these kind of low-level implementations or really learning anything that stretches your mind out, you start to get that dopamine rush when you figure something out and you get that reward for some practical use of it. And you start to look for the next opportunity to really look for information that you don't know in a shape that you've never experienced it before.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I can think of one specific example where I was working on a UI, And the UI had this feature where you could click through. It was sort of like a wizard, but there were, you know, multiple paths through the wizard. And I realized that it was a linked list. I was like, oh, actually, wait a minute. (laughs) I've studied this concept before. And I broke out a whiteboard and I started showing uh, some of my colleagues. And they were like, oh, my God, this this is perfect. And then all of a sudden we had a language that we could use to Google. And that was really helpful, mm. having the vocabulary mm. to
0: Google. Yeah. And I, I think we, we've done that pretty good today. Also, you know, we, we now have a label. Like, I now know that I can mess with the event loop in horrible ways. So, I'm going to <laughs> go home and do that till 2 a.m. <laughs> Jonathan, it was awesome having you on the show. Uh, and likewise, Vic and William, always a pleasure. Jonathan, is there any way that the people can get in touch with you if they have any questions about things they should or shouldn't do with the event loop?
1: Yeah, um, sure. People can reach me on Twitter at The Wexler. <laughs> and Just um, one. <laughs> definitely, if you buy the book through Manning, there is an, a forum there. Where you can ask questions. I'm happy to answer there. And Otherwise, I'm pretty much around in the New York and Philadelphia tech communities, so you can find me usually by that same handle. But I'll, I'll find a way to answer your question if it makes its way through the grapevine of <laughs> <laughs> the Get Programming series. And where can we buy your book? So, yeah, you can get the book um, at manning.com and on Amazon. It's Get Programming with Node.js by Jonathan Wexler.
2: Get Programming with Node.js by Jonathan Wexler. Yep. And we'll try to get a link in the show notes
0: for you guys. Maybe a discount code or two if you can shake some people down. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and our amazing host, Michael Nunez, who's out being a dad, and me, your host, Dave Anderson, thanks for listening to the rabbit hole.